ladies and gentlemen, we're going to take you all the way down in New Orleans this time. Welcome to another edition of Hard to Paint with David Grubb. And as we are doing each and every Thursday, I am joined by the one and only Dino, the Dean Hansen. As we do a little something we call high-low, you know, that's what we call it now, high-low. We, we talk about basketball, everything uh, concerning the game from a perspective of two people who just love the game and, and go a little bit deeper than box scores and opinion. We try to get into – helping fans really look at the game in a different way uh, to be better fans, better observers of the game of basketball. Right. That's, that's the goal. Here. Right. Dino. I low hard in the paint is how we do it. My brother, every Thursday, you best believe we're going beyond the box score. We're helping you look beyond the analytics that everybody wants to make be so ingratiated and a part of the game, as opposed to just, going through the eye test and quite frankly i like one of the questions that somebody was talking about earlier so you best believe that no question about it and not only are we just two guys who 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 love the game of basketball but two former players former coaches intricately involved in the sports broadcasting side of basketball so we're not just two regular dudes going high low hard in the paint we bring it to you the way it's supposed to be because not saying it in a vain way, but yeah, we have that background and that experience to help you with that eye test that's necessary. Getting to understand the differences between working hard and effort, the differences between uh, 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 you putting up 25 and and, and 15 rebounds, but not having an imprint on the game when the imprint can only be 10 points and five rebounds. So we help you understand that entire aspect all together, my brother. So, yes, it's time to go high-low, man. <laughs> now, there was – there's something that I did want to um, talk about um, before we got into the NBA, and that's something that you and I have both been involved in, and that's the Gold Coast Athletic Conference. And this week, mm-hmm. it's the only HBCU conference in the NAIA. Um, and this week, Xavier University – one of its flagship members um, decided and announced that it is leaving to go to the Red River Conference. Yeah. Xavier has essentially been the pillar of that conference for the last 15 years or so. Um, mm-hmm. And it's one of the renowned HBCUs in the country, particularly in producing the most uh, pharmacy candidates of any school in the country. Black or right. white. <laughs> I mean, it's just it. Mm-hmm. But this is a huge blow for a conference that has already seen Suno abandon its athletic program. Yep. Um, now you lose Xavier. Uh, so the Louisiana imprint is down to Dillard University, which has had some very good seasons as of late. Um, but this is it's, – it's, it's a sad kind of moment for me, though not completely unexpected – based on the leadership that we saw previously. And I'm not putting that on Kiki Baker Barnes, who you and I both um, know and love. 
Uh, she walked into a situation that was already fraught um, with a lot of mess. And you and I both worked with the conference, um, you know, as broadcasters. Um, I've also been their sports information director and an assistant to the commissioner. And, you know, this, it's not surprising, but it's very saddening to see, because I, I, I would say that there, the other schools in Edward Waters or at Talladega, who are also expanding their offerings, the Tougaloo, which is now expanding its sports offerings, I don't think that they're long to stay um, once now that Xavier is gone. Dave, you hit it right on the head. That is a major fixture and pillar of the GCAC and the impact that they've had overall in athletics specifically, which is going to take a blow. As you previously mentioned, the fact that Southern University of New Orleans also cut its athletic program. So that only leaves Dillard here in the city. And you're right, some of the other schools like Tougaloo and Edward Waters, they just built brand new athletic facilities. Talladega just built that brand new state-of-the-art facilities to help bolster and be able to compete at the same level, especially after Xavier uh, opened up their convocation center to show that there really is a, a need and that the dollars will be spent on the athletic program to be able to compete. So losing Xavier, most certainly, who has been that anchor, if you will, uh, is going to, unfortunately, probably in the long, in, in the grand scheme of it all, have a trickle-down effect to the point that these other schools now are in limbo of exactly where do we go and what do we do going forward. And in order for them to have the right impact, it's going to take a serious leader with great vision to be able to have everyone to stay engaged and to try to continue the GCAC without a Xavier University. There is no, I mean, at this point, you're saying, you talk about a conference that's lost, lost Fisk, it lost Rust, um, loses Suno, now losing Xavier. Um, it had already made the transition with the, the PWIs of the, the Bell Havens, University of Mobile, all those things had already moved on. So now with Xavier as the most financially stable, two of that group, those conference fees go up in a time when economics are going down, when enrollment is going to go down for right. a year or two. You're going to take these hits. They have to add schools. There's no choice with them to try to get two, three more institutions in there because the schools are not going to be able to afford the dues that it requires to be Correct. competitive. Because the less schools now, that means these other universities are going to have to compensate for that loss, which means that their financial responsibilities are going to increase that they just don't have. And especially given what the climate is that we're dealing with when it comes to COVID and enrollment being down, the fact that you're doing virtual learning, which is also taking away fees of the proctors that are in school teaching as well. So there's going to be an entire shift in a multitude of aspects. It's, it's, I, I wish them the best. Um, I talked to a couple people yesterday after 
David made the decision, and you could just tell. I mean, you and I both know um, the wheels were set in motion years ago by just mismanagement, and that's the thing is organizations, if you're mismanaged, if you have poor leadership, it does not matter how good the people are at individual institutions or how dedicated the students are. It just takes bad leadership to tear something down. Absolutely. And the unfortunate thing about it is now that you were in a position where you were starting to have some stability and a direction with Dr. Kiki Bournes at the helm, it's unfortunate now that under her regime that she just recently got, that she's dealing with the backlash of those prior to now. Mm-hmm. And those prior to have already moved on to their own thing, probably destroying the other conferences. Because <laughs> that's what they do. I mean, if you look at the track record, and all it, people got to do is go look for it itself. up. Google it. And, you know, we ain't got to say names, but you just go look it up. And so I'm not see. saying, you know, so I'm not just, I'm not voicing my opinion. Yeah, I'm this is a track record. Facts. This is there is a a long track record of failure, um, not only at that institution but at others. And um, hey, I just I I feel worse for the kids. That's the ones I feel bad about. Not for the Xavier athletes because obviously they want to compete at a higher level, and I get that. And mm-hmm. I, and we know Jason Horn very well, and Jason yep. has always said he wants Xavier to be the best. And I think that his thing was, if we're gonna be the best, we got to compete against the best. And that's what he's looking for is that opportunity. And uh, that's, that's and really unfortunate a, that they couldn't sustain it. And from an overall growth standpoint, Dave, we both can understand, hey, listen, we want to grow our program. We want to elevate and have more national notoriety. We want more of an impact. And, again, you can't knock anybody for wanting something better and moving forward in the their programs of, again, yeah, we think we have what it takes to compete at this next level. Well, let's go ahead and, and, and make that necessary move, even though it's going to hurt the conference and those other schools. And it might even hurt them in the short run just competitively because it's a harder thing to do. It's a tougher conference Absolutely. to go into. And in the short run, you might take a hit. But yeah. if you're saying ultimately, like you said, to get that exposure to, to expand the Xavier brand too, because – at this level, and, and I need people to understand this, at the NAIA level, we're not talking about athletes who get everything handed to them. They are no. – they are <laughs> it's, it's, it's very tough to maintain an athletic program at the NAIA level. You have to have a it real commitment. It most certainly is. And, it most certainly is. And to, to see what Xavier's been able to do to be nationally ranked in basketball, volleyball, track, you know, they, they are constantly there. Um, but they want to take that next step, and I can't blame them um, for wanting to do that. And, Dave, let's not forget this point also, which was a contributing factor, is they also have a baseball program that, that they, they brought just back added, as well yes. now. And they're adding softball, I believe, and they're going to be adding more sports. I think they've even explored the idea of football, um, not committing to anything, but I know that they've looked at the idea of it. Yes, I've heard those conversations happening as well, but – the former head baseball coach at St. Aug is part of the baseball coaching staff at Xavier. So with more athletic outlets and programs 
come more need, come more notoriety, comes that branding aspect that you want to take to the next level. You're like, okay, listen, that's great that we have a baseball program, but not every school in our conference has that. Not every school in our conference has a softball program. Well, if we want to compete at this next level, we need to also add those sports. And here's what that's going to do for Xavier. As you know, it's going to also increase their enrollment because now they have more viable aspects as opposed to just specific sports now. And you attract a different type of student. You just get to because when you expand those choices, and, and we know HBCUs, too, do, are dealing with these realities. First of all, HBCUs have never discriminated against people coming in. Never. So, but when you're Xavier and you open up a baseball program, what does that open you up for? Hey. More non-black students. And I'm not saying that as a negative, but because you, you want those students who, A, can qualify academically, and B, who have the means and resources, who can pay their checks for tuition and all those things without having you to supply grants for everything. So, I mean, you get, you expose those families to Xavier and you help break down a wall too, because they become, they say, oh, well, I'm sending my kid to Xavier. I had this perception of an HBCU. Well, this is Mm -hmm. what it really is. And you start expanding people's minds and that's part of it too, because Xavier has always had a significant non-black student body, whether it's Vietnamese or white students or international students, they've always had a significant group. And this is how you maintain that. And let me also add to that fact that we don't want there to be, because we know it to be true, that there are many African-Americans that are involved with baseball, specifically, specifically, and I want to give them a shout out because they do a fantastic job at the MLB Youth Academy at Wesley Barrow Stadium under the, the direction of Eddie Davis. They have the Andre Dawson Classic out there. The high school all-star baseball tournament is out there. They also have softball. So there are major league baseball is making it a point to be more engaged with the African-American community and getting them on the diamond. And major league baseball literally puts all the money into that baseball park because they want to grow that in the communities. And it's not just here in New Orleans. It's in, It's in Puerto Rico, it's in Compton, it's in D.C. So, again, this is progress, if you will, when you add those programs that Xavier has added, which is going to give you a different dynamic of students attending your university now, which, Dave, is what we as African Americans have been fighting for forever, it's going to start bridging that gap of a different generation to see the greater picture that we are all the same. Yeah, because Xavier's not going to change his identity. It's no. not going to change his identity. But what this no. does is you, you you grow or you die. I mean, that's just a simple thing. And, and how do you choose that growth? I don't. You know, Xavier's not trying to be the biggest private institution in the country. But you got to maintain enrollment and grow it and make it bigger. And this is how you do that. You expand into that Texas area where you do have a significant draw for a student body. You expand into the, the, the region that you recruit from. And that's the southeast and into the, the southwest. So, yeah, I mean, I get it. I get it. And, and it's just, it's, it, you know, the ultimate thing is I hope the rest of those schools, um, particularly, you know, locally Dillard, uh, which has had this resurgence over the last few years. I hope that, that that continues for them, and that whatever happens, they find 
If it's the GCAC gets stronger, great. If they have to go somewhere else and find a home and, and reestablish themselves there, as long as they're successful, I wish them nothing but the best. Absolutely. All the best to Dr. Kiki Bournes and the athletic director that she is. Uh... And again, just like you said, we've worked with her. No question, you can't deny her energy, her professionalism, her dedication to the position to grow it in any way that's possible. So definitely wish her all the best. All right. So to make the transition now, there's no easy way to do it. We just move on to the NBA. And the number one thing, I, yeah, we, we have a game tonight, but we have to start with the downfall of the Los Angeles Clippers. <laughs> so they blow a 3-1 lead. For the third time. They had double for Doc. It's the third time. Third time. So they blow a three-one lead. They had double-digit leads in every game, five, six, and seven. They had double-digit leads, which makes it even worse. That you don't. Not only did you lose three, come from a three-one, you gave up double-digit leads. And the only rotation player who was a net positive in those last three games, Zubac. And he played, did not get enough minutes. Doc refused to give that man more than 18 minutes a night. And I did not understand that. So, hey, you know why? He was tired after three minutes. <laughs> Zubac was ready to play. That dude was, he was no, eating glass. I'm, I'm clowning on yeah. that aspect of saying being tired after three minutes, you know, because of Doc's poor excuses. But go ahead. So, so let's we Doc. I got a lot we got to say on Doc. I'm sure I got a lot on Doc. I'm sure you got a lot on Doc. Mm. But let's start with the two guys that are that have to be held most accountable. Number one is Kawhi Leonard. So this is Kawhi. His last three games in the second half. Last three games in the second half, he was a negative fifty-seven in those three games. Shot twenty-nine percent from the field, thirty-three percent from three. Had only 12 boards, five assists, with four turnovers, two steals, and two blocks in the second half of those games over the last three games. Paul George, minus 20.6 net rating, minus 67 overall in those three games. 32 points total on 30 shots, 27% from the field, 26% from three, only nine boards four turnovers, four steals, and one block. Have any two players in a game in three clinching situations had such poor second halves in your memory? Dave, I was literally appalled, disgusted, shocked, dismayed for both of them to go down in the way that they did. Uh, Kawhi looked slow and legs dead the entire time. I don't know if you recall me saying this, but when Paul George was in OKC, I would always say Paul George has relegated himself to being a poor, long-range jump shooter. Everything he does, and even when, even when you're off, you know, there's a difference between being off 
and just jacking up shots. When you're off, you can get back in that groove again. But for your decision-making and for your overall, everything about Paul George was off day. He's shooting shots that are hitting the side of the backboard, bro. So it wasn't just being Clean looks. Clean looks. Wide open. Wide open. And, you know, it's hard for me to accept this well- it was difficult being in the bubble as he alluded to once before. Everybody was in that same boat. You would have thought that would have given you more reason to be focused on the task at hand because you understood, listen, there's nothing else that's going on here in this bubble except us playing basketball. Your focus and your dedication should have been to nothing but that. Even when it comes to the poorest excuse that he gave of after the game, the chemistry and, and, and being out of shape. Hold on, hold on, hold on. So on the nights you weren't playing, what were you doing? On the days that you weren't practicing because you weren't practicing anymore, you mean you weren't individually running on your own? You on had bike, whatever? You had gotten that complacent that you weren't training at all and it was showing it was so apparent and i don't want to hear the excuse of uh of, of well we got caught up we were tired dave correct me if i'm wrong nuggets didn't, the denver nuggets, didn't the denver nuggets play two series where they had to go seven games Dave, and with overtimes in those and overtimes so that was a very insulting excuse to me that to me showed a sign of you're not mentally tough first and foremost secondly i'm glad it happened for as much as we all wanted to see the lakers compete against the clippers for the battle of la it goes to show you that load management and i you know if nothing else 2020 in spite of all that has gone on has shown you that analytics <laughs> and load management People, they are not what you think they are. Because, Dave, let me ask you a question. There's no way in the world. And I can't. And, and I was thinking about this today. And I'm like, when have I ever, first of all, asked a coach to take me out of a game? I have never in my lifetime asked to be taken out of a game. I had to be pulled out of a game. See, yeah, okay? when I think about load management in the tra- in the correct sense, you know, it's something that you did – I manage your minutes on a night-to-night basis. I know you give you can give me 30 good minutes. Then I'm going to have you for my 30 good minutes. But it's not you sitting out and taking a game off on a back Missing or doing games. things. Yeah, you got to play oh. unless you're hurt. That's That That was never you just get the night to rest. I mean, Here's the- that's just on it, – it, to me, that's – it's a way to take away your rhythm. You get rhythm by here's playing. The, and, Dave, here's the other caveat. You know what load management was? Load management is this right here, Dave. I'm injured. I'm not feeling well. So maybe I won't do every drill at practice. But I'm still going to practice some. To keep yeah, my you work on your cardio. You work on your the stuff I'm intellectually still, exactly. to walk through. I'm going to get my treatment that I need 
you know, during, you know, when it gets to blocking out drill, if I'm having a knee issue, maybe I won't do my blocking out drills with the team, but I'll be on the side shooting free throws. I'll be on the side still running. I'll be on the side taking my in-game shots, okay? Or if I'm really injured, maybe I'm not practicing. But I was never, ever going to miss a game. I would sit out at practice if I had to, to be prepared to play the game. But I am not going to miss a game to save myself for later on. Where's your you level of competition? You Where's cannot concede the game. I don't believe in conceding games because that one game could come back to bite your ass later in the year. And it always can. Dave, yeah. it also sends, and, and I've always felt this way, bro. It also sends a negative message to your teammates. So we know as the star of a team, you do get preferential treatment on stuff. But when you get to the point that you can sit out regularly, but I can't, you want me to work on my timing, but how can I work on my timing if you're not here? How can we get that cohesiveness that we need when you're sitting out games as well? Because no matter what we do in practice, in practice, we're going over situations. We're not necessarily in a mode where we're building that cohesion. That cohesion comes from us being on the court together. Game speed and, and game tension. Exactly. It comes from us communicating. Paul George, Kawhi Leonard, neither one of them are talkers. Neither one of them are getting your face. Patrick Beverly does it, but Patrick Beverly does it more from a show type of a standpoint. Yeah. Nobody's listening to Patrick Beverly as far as being a leader like that. No, Patrick Beverly wants to mix it up and just be a jackal sometime. Okay. But he is not that tough guy leader that you need on your team. He's a sidekick. So, yeah. You know, and then let's be honest. He comes off the bench. You're not going to listen to Patrick Beverly. Secondly, even if he is in the starting lineup as your point guard, you're not going to listen to Patrick Beverly. He doesn't Here's run the offense. Thing. He's, he's point the... guard by name, not by right. authority. Exactly. Not by authority, not by leadership, not by directing anything that's going on with the flow of the game. How about this also? All of a sudden, didn't you notice something different from Patrick Beverly in his bubble? He decided that he all of a sudden became a what? A shooter now. You notice he was taking a lot more shots that he would normally never take. He all of a sudden decides, well, you know what? Let me start shooting up my shots. Everybody else is. You see, what happens is you build this division when you try to make it a point of, well, let me cater to Paul and cater to Kawhi, that level of accountability. There's only so much hard work that Montrez Harrell is going to keep on doing night in and night out. You coming at well, me. Well, he was awful in this series, though. Montrez was too. terrible. No, he was totally off. But what I'm saying, when you look at the grand scheme of it all, bro, I'm playing every game there is. I'm at every practice that there is. And you are quick to jump on me about something. But what about those two guys? We understand they're Paul and Kawhi. And, and, and let's be honest about it, Dave. Let's cut all this. Everybody has a personal ego. We talked about this last week. Everybody has a personal ego. But I think and this is only- less about Kawhi than it is about Paul. Oh, I agree. This is like, I, I think just if anybody that that team, when they talking about chemistry and when he's talking about chemistry, 
I think people are not that crazy about playing with Paul. That's what it feels like to me. Because Kawhi, at the very least, I know he's going to hold himself accountable. And that as right now, that, work. that right now he is as mad as he's ever been. And I think that he, you know, for his mind is, y'all go, we're going to get this right one way or another. But it seems like Paul George, and not just this year, but we saw it last year at OKC. How did he perform in the playoffs for OKC last year? We, we were talking about the, remember, that was the joke last year. Playoff P is coming. You didn't see no playoff P last year. You didn't no, see playoff sir. P this year. So Again, relegated to poor, long-range jump shots. Even, Dave, there was even a period where, if you, you may recall, they cut the lead down to eight because they started getting a little bit more engaged defensively, and they started to push the attack. The ball started to move a little bit better. All of a sudden, Paul gets the ball, and he just decides – let me try to get mine going again. And he just started jacking up shots again. And you're like, dude, take it to the cup. Get to the rim. Penetrate and kick. But he literally made a conscious decision to take bad long-range shots. And I agree. We know Kawhi is going to give us that yeoman's work ethic. We know this. But Paul George, I'm sorry. People can say what they want as Kawhi being the leader of his team and them anointing themselves as the king of L.A. and the champions already and so on and so forth. To me, Paul George was M.I.A. Absolutely. I don't think there's any way, other way to put it because, like you said, to go into a game seven and only take four, what was it, five shots inside the arc in a game seven as a guy who has the height advantage from his opponent, a guy who can – Post up. You should be able – like, when your jump shot is not working the way his was not through the entire series, was through the entire series, and the Paul George that was the guy who people were had on the ascending pile when he was in Indiana when they took the Miami Heat to the conference finals and go six games and whatnot, that Paul George would attack the basket. Yes. That Paul George was you aggressive pay. because yes. he was multifaceted. Paul George is not multifaceted anymore. He is easy to defend because he's not going around you. He's not going to cross you over. He's not going to do something to make a defender work. He's easy to defend because he's stationary. Yep. And 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 so, yeah, you can get volume numbers, but if you're scoring 32 points on 30 shots, you and I both know that is not going to cut it. That's a recipe for failure. And the only reason you got those 32 points on 30 shots is because most of those were threes. So, I mean, when you're shooting 27% in the second half, nobody wins games like that. When your overall team shooting percentage is below 30 in the second half of games, in clinching games, you can't win. And they I'll just. Tell you, I'll tell you something else, too. And maybe you noticed it. Because I most certainly did. The Clippers looked scared. They were on edge all night long. It was as if they were just waiting for Denver to decide, let's flip this switch. And once Denver, because it was never a feeling, and I'm sure you got this feeling as well. It was never a feeling where the Clippers were ever totally in control 
not just on the court, but mentally they looked weak. The Nuggets, even when they fell behind, they and, and they did this the entire series, even when they were losing, they never panicked. They never, never changed their identity. They never started doing things that they could not do. Guys didn't try to make plays they could not make. And they stayed in their principles. And they were efficient. All right, so let's, we, before we get to Denver, because we need to give them their credit, we got to deal yeah. with Doc. We got to deal with Doc. Because we need to have a conversation about Doc. And, and Doc has been getting a free pass for a while. And as a or person, I love Doc. He's done a lot of good things as a person. And as a coach, he's a good coach. But he is over, over, yeah. overstated. Let's go through some facts with Doc Rivers. First coach ever to blow three, three one series leads. He did it. In he did it in Orlando with Tracy McGrady. He did it in and two times now with the Clippers. Clippers, yep. Two times. Did it against the Spurs in the conference semifinals a few years back, and now he's done it again. So in his 10 years with the Clippers, he's never been to a conference finals. Five years with Tracy McGrady, no playoff series win. In Boston, the first three years, they got worse every season. He was on the verge of getting fired until they make a trade to bring in Kevin Garnett and Ray Allen. Mm -hmm. Win that title first year, go back to the finals third year. And since then, since that last finals appearance, five total playoff series wins. And now let's go through the players that this man has had in his employ since that time. Woo-woo! You got Paul Pierce, Hall of Famer, Rajon Rondo, Hall of Famer, Kevin Garnett, Hall of Famer, Ray Allen, Hall of Famer, uh, Chris Paul, Hall of Famer, uh, DeAndre Jordan, all-defensive player, uh, Blake Griffin, probable Hall of Famer, Kawhi Leonard, Hall of Famer, uh, Paul George, probably not a Hall of Famer, but still very solid, Montrez Harrell, six-man of the year, Lou Williams, multiple six-man of the year awards, Pat Bev, all-defensive type player. Uh, so he's not had to struggle with tools. He's got many of the top 50 to 75, 80 players of all time sitting in, at his disposal. And yet there have been seven seasons where he did not even make the playoffs in his career. No, excuse me. Yeah, seven seasons he didn't even make the playoffs out of 13. You got most of these first-round first, first round exits when you do make it. It's time to talk about Doc, man. <laughs> I put it out there on the first night. You've had some of the most elite players even prior to, I mean, you have been given a bevy of phenomenal basketball talents. And resources beyond uh, the the Celtics spare no expense and Steve Ballmer since he got to the LA. We know Steve Ballmer just signs his name to the check and says, do what you need to do. So he has not had any handcuffs on anything that he has wanted to do whatsoever. Accountability has to lie on Doc. All the success goes to him when they're winning. The success was going to him when he was up 3-1. The success was going to him when they were pulling it all together. Well, why do you shy away and take the blame off of him? And granted, we both know, yes, Players have to go out there and play. But Mike Malone outcoached Doc Rivers in this series. Doc Rivers made no adjustments for the Joker. 
made no adjustments whatsoever. None. Okay? Additionally, Dave, one of the best ways to defend a big, Joker can barely jump across a piece of paper. All right? You crowd him. You get into his space. Montrez and them were literally backing off of him. And I would ra- I would take well, my chances. Here's the bigger would, mistake, though. Hold on. This is what I thought the bigger mistake, particularly in Game 7, when Joker's just dropping passes all over the place. You send in a weak double team of somebody who does not block his size, doesn't cut off his field of vision. Right. So you send in these double teams against a team that is also because they have played with this man. They cut off the ball. And everybody in Denver cut off the ball, and you didn't see a single Clippers player. And we talk about the basics. No one bumps the cutter. No one sends the cutter to an off direction. Makes them run out of bounds. Makes them change their angle. Not one person. You see guys running unimpeded to the vacant spaces behind what is supposed to be one of the best defenses in the NBA. And, And a part of it goes to... When no Zubach on the floor, you have no height to block his field of vision. Mm-hmm. Harold is sending Kawhi or sending another guard at, Zub- at, at, at Jokic is not going to get mm-hmm. Not at all. Just like you said, nobody was ever bumped off their path. Nobody, weak side defense was non-existent. You never saw anybody hedging to the lane whatsoever to give help because just like you said Dave we all know when you got a phenomenal passer an unselfish passer like a guy like the Joker he's a willing and happy to pass the basketball he's a guy who has told you he doesn't want to have to put up 30 and 40 at night he wants to pass the basketball so you have a willing dominant passer on your team all you have to do is move, and he's going to find you. Just and they move. leave as soon. And you saw, like, the Clippers were sending the double before the catch even finished. There was uh-huh. one play where Jokic catches it at the, at the uh, free throw line, and they've already sent the double. So all he does is he just has to turn because his man has <laughs> already left. As soon as his man left, you cut to the rim, and he doesn't – it's a touch. His feet barely hit the ground. He's like, I know where somebody's coming. Boom, drop the one over his shoulder. The same principle. He didn't have to worry about it because as soon as he caught, he can look over his shoulder and see that that vacated area, there is a player coming on my right. Boom, drop it off the bucket. And that's the time that we've talked about of spending together and building that level of consistency. That was there. Building that level of consistency, that was there. That was my other phone. Uh, you good? <laughs> no, no, we're good. Yeah, that was my phone going off because of the, uh, you know, I was just setting everything up for uh, game night. <laughs> got to, you know, because uh, I, I, I got the basketball game on TV, the football game on my phone <laughs> while I'm working on my iPad. So <laughs> that's, that's the name of the game now, man. <laughs> But with that being said, Dave, Denver was able to do whatever they wanted to do. 
you were notoriously known for being this team that got into players. Never saw any of that. You never saw any fight from them whatsoever. Listen, a lot of credit has to be given to, 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 to Denver's resolve, okay? And to Mike Malone's adjustments and capitalizing on what the Clippers weren't doing whatsoever. And when you factor that in there, you were getting production from Jeremy Grant doing those little intangible things that you needed him to do. Okay. You also got those intangibles from Harris. You got Paul production. Millsap. Paul Millsaps even started their transition, getting back into it again. You got production from Plumley off the bench as well. That team literally, instead of feeling defeated, them being down made them laser focused and got them cohesively back on the same page. And, and you once could, that, and right? you could say that it took them those first couple games because even they said it like it took them. Um, they didn't get blown out early. They no. just needed to get their legs out from uh, get their legs back from the first series. And I think also, yeah, it gave Malone that time to make the adjustments because he couldn't really sit there and be preparing for the Clippers in the previous series. So you sit there right. now, I've gotten a couple games, I'm watching them, I'm breaking them down, and he broke them all the way down. <laughs> Did he ever? Did he ever? But, Dave, let's not forget this. Mike Malone was moving in the right direction with the Sacramento Kings when he was there. Look, that's the one coach in Boogie Cousins' pro career that he will vouch for. You saw him on social he media spoke- when they won. It's Bruh. Boogie there saying, hey, you came from the dirt, dog. Got it from the mud. Got it from the mud. Bruh, Mike Malone is a fantastic basketball mind. He was turning Sacramento around. And, and, and in addition to that, let's not forget this mention in Boogie, Mike Malone was also a guy that Boogie was listening to. Boogie and Mike Malone had a great relationship. Mike Malone allowed Boogie to be himself, but at the same point in time, he was able to reel Boogie in. So you can't discredit, and I'm saying you, I'm just speaking in generalities, you can't discredit the work that Mike Malone has done as a head coach in the NBA, man. He has been phenomenal. And then here's the other part, Dave. The guy has made hell of adjustments during game situations. Mm -hmm. So it wasn't so much that the Clippers lost it. Denver just yeah, they took got it beat. From them. Yeah, they got it. it, it exactly. Denver, Denver earned took it. it. Yeah. Denver took it. Yeah, my brother. And and then again, we talk about the comparison from first half to second half. This is Joker in the second half of those last three games. <laughs> 30, 38 points total, so roughly 13 points a game in the second half. Shot 36% from three as a big. 28 rebounds. That's nine boards a half in them three games. 16 assists. So he's dropping five dimes every game. And only seven turnovers. A plus 56 in the second half. And this is your big. And then you get Jamal Murray. Now, this is the thing about Murray. So he shoots 52% over those last three games. Only nine of those t- attempts, and this is, again, for people who think that you got to destroy people from deep. 
Only nine of his shots were three-pointers. He went six of nine <laughs> from three in the second half in those games. You, they didn't shoot their way with threes back in. They took good no. shots, their best shots. 12 assists from a guy who's not a point guard, only four turnovers, and a plus 73 in those final three games. And like you said, and then you add on top of that Mike Malone's adjustments. You talk about Paul Millsaps, who they said Mike Malone told him, you're going to be the X factor in this series. The matchup is great for you. And Millsaps went out there and did his job. (laughs) And then like you said, there is no – after Michael Porter Jr. said his little nonsense about they got to – Find him and never all. another problem again because yeah. the offense still didn't change. It was still nope. Jokic and Murray running the pick and roll out the top. So he just got more active. Remember, we talked about that. Yep. He made himself more available. He made himself more engaged in the game to have an impact on the game. And that's what we said. Is like if you are if you worried about touches, create touches for yourself. <laughs> Make yourself available, get rebounds, run in transition, do those things, create touches. So now we move on. So tonight we get – I mean, uh, we're going to have Lakers-Nuggets game one. Mm-hmm. And no, no, no. That's tomorrow. Tonight, tomorrow. We, got, tonight yeah, we got – Tonight we got Miami two, and Boston. Miami and Boston, game two. Miami two. So going to game one, Miami pulls out game one. You get the big bam out of bio block. Um I still make Miami the favorite in this series because of their depth. Uh, two great coaches. Uh, uh, clearly, Jason Tatum is is trying to make that leap into super superstar status. Uh, Jalen mm-hmm. Brown, I think they can still do more to get him involved. He needs more shots. But overall, I just think Miami's going to win this as a war of attrition. Boston's gone through so many games. Miami has better depth. Miami is more physical. They have more size. I think that just it's Miami's going to grind this one eventually. Um, I don't know if it goes six or seven, but I think it's just Miami's just there's too many of them. And Dave, you also know the closer you get to the Eastern Conference Finals, the Western Conference Finals, and the championship game, things get tighter. Things get tougher. You have to have more resolve and toughness. It's no longer just about you being talented you see during the course of a season uh like with the clippers during the course of a season they'll give you a level of excitement they will give you the numbers that you want but miami gives you that air of toughness all season long and then they get tougher in the playoffs they you know they tighten up and fine-tune those aspects that are necessary to win you those games. They don't shy away from anything. Jimmy Butler has gotten these cats. Matter of fact, I want to touch on that real quick while still talking about the Miami Heat. You know, you and I have talked about this every time we have a conversation, even before high-low on hard in the paint. But Mm -hmm. Jimmy is not going to put up 25, 30, 40 points a night. AD could put up 25, 35, 40 points a night, and you don't feel the imprint. Jimmy puts up 15, 8 assists, 9 rebounds, but you feel the imprint that he leaves in the mark on the rest of his teammates. 
those are the impacts and the imprints that you and I have been talking to people about for the longest time. Dave, the thing that I saw the most was they just increased their level of activity and they never panicked. A credit to Mike Malone as well, because he kept them engaged on what the task at hand was. You never saw them panic. Never in any situation did they all of a sudden say, we're down by 18 and we've seen it. Now all of a sudden let one player decide, let me shoot that one 18 point shot that gets us back in the game. They never did that. They never lost their principles on anything. And that's, that's key. You cannot, you adjust, but you do not change. You cannot change who you are by the time you get to a postseason because you're, you're supposed to have figured that out. You make teams change who they are um, because you know they're going to try to uh, impose their will on you. At least most good teams will. So ultimately, it's can you stick to your principles while the other team is trying to force you away from them? We look at this now with the series with the Lakers and the Nuggets. Lakers did win the season series 3-1, but Denver's three losses by a combined 16 points. And overall, Denver outscored them in the four games on the series. I think the Lakers' problems are exactly the same as what the Clippers' problems would be in a lot lot of respects. You're going to have to make Rajon Rondo defend the pick and roll a lot. You're going to have to have Danny Green be very disciplined in what he does with Gary Harris. Um... You're going to have to stop penetration by those long wings that they have. They have guys who can defend who are much longer and more athletic up in the front court than what Houston had for the Lakers to go up against. You have length in Plumlee. You have length in Jokic. You have length off the bench. And if they need to, they can throw bowl bowl out there to be seven foot four inches of, of uh, length as well. Just to give them a different change of look and pace. Yeah, so I think that they are, again, very well suited as a matchup for the Lakers. What it comes down to, to me, to this part is, all right, you've gone through these first two stages, but now it's the big stage. And can you do this mentally? That's the question. And I, I, I like that, and I'm glad that you said it that way, which leads right into something else that I know you saw and heard, and I like the way he did it after the game when Jamal Murray said, the Lakers need to be worried about us. Not just us worried about them, because the Denver Nuggets are battle-tested. That is the difference right there. Now, we know LeBron's talent is going to stand out. We understand that. We know that if pushed around, which I'm pretty sure Mike Malone and them have already discussed, pushed Anthony around, he's going to drift out further and further, which makes him a less than viable, impactful player from a scoring standpoint. The further he is away from the rim, the least effective he is. And Denver if I'm if I, if I'm wrong, I will be the first one to admit it after the series is over. But I don't feel as if Mike Malone has said, "Okay, let Anthony get whatever he wants close to the rim." If anything, he's saying the complete opposite: push him far away as possible and make him become 
a jump shooter because we know he's ineffective when he does that. You also have to look at the fact of you've gotten no production from J.R. Smith, which wasn't a surprise to me. Nothing from Deion Waiters wasn't a surprise for me. Kyle Kuzma has to elevate his game to a whole nother level. We know Rajon's going to be Rajon in that he is going to direct and lead. Uh, the Morris twin, he could be impactful if he's making shots, but we also know he can be disruptive if he's not making those shots and being ineffective. So, you know, they are going to go as LeBron goes. We know this, but it doesn't mean that Denver also can't make, and you've seen it happen, LeBron become a bad jump shooter and stop attacking the rim as well. And that's see, the, to me, the difference, the big difference between Houston and, and, and the way Houston tried to defend the Lakers and the way Denver can defend the Lakers is number one, I can switch Jeremy Grant who can defend LeBron James mm -hmm. and he can defend the four. If Davis is playing the four, if Kuzma's playing the four, he can defend Kuzma even better so he's flexible enough on a switch that I'm fine. Up front, Plumlee is a good enough of an athlete that I don't worry about his recovery. Right. You know, if, if, if he has to move, I'm, I'm fine with his athletic ability to get back and recover. Millsaps, he also helps weak side, too. He's a good, he's a fantastic weak side defender yep. as well. And I can put, I'm not worried about Millsaps guarding Kuzma. That's not a problem for me. Mm -hmm. You know what I mean? Not in the half court. Now, maybe in transition, right. Kuzma gives me a problem. But, again, I got guys who are, are quick enough to get out on him in the transition and get to those fans, to those spots on the, at the arc. So, to me, like I said, that challenge now, it's much different for Rajon Rondo to deal with Jamal Murray coming off that screen than it is dealing with Russ coming off that screen. Because yes. Russ wasn't going to hit his jumper. No. And go hit his jumper. And Murray has also shown you that he will finish at the rim and he can do it in a variety of ways. He's not, he doesn't have to be above the rim. He does he can he can use and shield his body to convert acrobatic layups. So he's not going to give you what you saw out of Russ, who is a guy who energy-wise didn't have it, physically wasn't there, mentally seemed like he was problematic, and then he just completely inefficient. That ain't the nuggets. The Nuggets work for good shots. They don't yes. – they do, and they keep everybody touching the ball so you don't get the isolation and boredom offensively for <laughs> the other players on the floor. And you're making the opposing team's defense move. And, David, here's the other aspect about it. What we keep – what seems to be the overlaying theme from everything that we've touched upon from – Miami to Denver is the fact that they're just extremely efficient. They don't get caught up into, well, we have to jack these many shots up because according to this, no, we're going to go out here. We're going to bet on ourselves that what we do is going to be better than what you do. And when that mid range shot is open, we'll take it. When that three-pointer is open, we'll take it. When that lane is open, we'll take it. So they are literally dissecting opposing teams. And again, I like that Jamal Murray's mindset is, hey, 
they need to be worried about me and what we're going to do to them. And I, and, and I love that mindset. To watch this young brother's maturation process and what he is doing in this bubble in the playoff series, Dave, we know this is where legends and legacies of players are made. It means nothing. You know, if you do it during the regular season consistently, that's fantastic. But you are known for what you do in those crucial moments and times and in this and in this bubble now, if you will, but still, it's the playoffs. Yeah, Robert so, Ory ain't close to being famous if you look at his regular season stats. Nowhere. If he's <laughs> just the average basketball player. For, for 82 best. games, he's just a dude. For 82 games, he's, he was a dude. But when the lights came on, when it was time. Big shot, Bob. Big shot, Bob. He got the title for a reason. So, I mean, and it's it's same, you know, in baseball's Reggie Jackson. You know, Reggie, again, Reggie strike out 200 times in a year. But it's October. But come November. <laughs> I mean, come October, November. <laughs> it is when what the it bright, is. When the bright lights are on and everybody is keying in onto you, how do you respond? And I love the efficiency that Denver plays with. You know, I, it, Denver reminds me of something I used to tell my younger brother all the time. You know, when you're a kid, you're enamored with just dribbling and just dribbling and just dribbling and just dribbling. And you're like, you understand the whole purpose and the goal of this is to put the ball up there. You get no style points for any of this nonsense out here. You're running yourself ragged. Oh, man, you can't do this. You can't do this. I said, but dude, I don't need to spend time jacking around with the basketball out here. I'm getting the basketball. I'm not wasting a lot of energy, and I'm getting to my spots to score. All right? I don't get no extra points for how well I handle the basketball because, Dave, you and I have both seen it, where crowds are like, Ooh, you saw that move? Yeah, but he missed, missed the, the shot. Though. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And, and my what your coach call it? My coach called it. You got the five hundred dollar moves with the fifty cent finish. You know, or you know, yeah. like, that's what we used to call all the time. You got all this stuff, and then when you get to the point of either making the shot or finishing a layup, you can't do that part. <laughs> You're out here all this dancing, but <laughs> it doesn't lead to it. It doesn't yield you anything. I go, dude, I don't need to waste energy on me. I said, it's not like I can't handle the ball, but why am I expending so much energy on this? Denver, on the other hand, they're moving the basketball. Even with Jamal Murray, and let's be honest, even with Jamal Murray scoring at the rate that he is, it's not as if he's unselfish. He moves the basketball as well. And that to me, speaks to the volume of Mike Malone's leadership. Because really, when you think about it, Dave, do the Nuggets have a vocal leader on the court? No. I, but mean, they, I, would, I would imagine that Millsap is the closest you got to that on the court. Or Paul maybe is, a Gary Harris. But, but Paul is always kind of quiet as well. The leader on that floor is Mike Malone. Think about it. Mike Malone is the one that's active all the time. He's vocal all the time. He's engaged all the time. So Mike Malone is really the leader of that team, and his team buys in to what he is doing. And here's the other thing. You know, Dave, when we talk about impact and the imprint, all right, 
Look at the way the Nuggets responded to Mike Malone when he came in that locker room after they won that game seven and on his birthday. The level of excitement, and you could see, and Dave, we've seen teams that are disjointed. We've also seen one or two players that might not want to be a part of what's going on. Everybody in that locker room was throwing water and and jumping on Mike Malone. Mike Malone was a player on that team. That says a lot about that cohesiveness and that level of consistency that Denver has built, bro. So, so going into that, I think Denver has a chance to win this series. I'm not going to pick them yet because I want to see how it starts. But I, I give them a legitimate chance to win this series. I think it goes six at the least, if not seven. I see Denver getting two games and waking LeBron up, so to speak, if you will. I don't – I don't think LeBron is taking Denver lightly at all. You no, can't. He isn't because he can't. He cannot if, afford to. If you take the Denver Nuggets lightly right now and you come out inept, Dave, I got to tell you, you are in major trouble because these boys are a different breed, man. And, Dave, you know when you've been in crunch situations and battle-tested, you just have a different air about you. You just do. No situation is too big for you. And that's the way Denver plays. Like, it doesn't matter what you do. And not in a vain, arrogant sense, but more of a sense. We know, regardless of how high of a clip the Lakers could be playing at, Denver also knows, probably from Mike Mike Malone, the Lakers will let you back in the game. They will take you. Exactly. That's exactly where I was getting ready to go. And because they can't shoot, that is when you go at them and attack in the same way we have been doing. This team functions extremely well. And I use that word team specifically for them because they function as a team should. Well, let's They're do efficient. This. Let's do this. So the four teams you have remaining, Miami, Denver, Boston, L.A., mm-hmm. three of these four teams – Let's talk about how they were built. Let's start with Miami. Miami is a team that's built primarily from either guys that they drafted or mid-level trades outside of Jimmy Butler. Everybody else is a mid-level, not not earth-shattering trade. Jake Jay Crawford is an is a game changer on the NBA landscape, but for Miami, he serves his purpose. Andre Almost Godala, if you will. Almost if you will, players that other teams didn't want anymore. Right. Andre Godala has been out of Golden State. Memphis didn't really want him. He was a piece to move. Now Mm -hmm. he's in Miami. He doesn't have to play big minutes, but he does enough Iguodala things. You have Goran uh, Dragic. Goran Dragic. Who is, for those who don't know, the leading scorer for the Heat in the postseason. You might have thought it was Jimmy Butler. You might have thought it was Bam. It's the Dragon. So, again, that shows you how this team is built. You take your Denver Nuggets. Jokic, a dude who's been playing basketball for roughly seven years of his Mm -hmm. life Mm -hmm. and is an MVP-level center in this league. Jamal Murray, a guy who, yes, was, what, the 13th pick in the draft? Right right after Buddy? 
Mm-hmm. So, Out of Kentucky? Yep. Yep. So a guy that, but up until now was a good player, but nobody was talking about a do doing these types of things. Mm-hmm. The rest of them are guys who have been with other organizations who had um, moved around here and there. And, Jeremy Grant's yeah. a, a journeyman. Paul Millsap's at the mm-hmm. back end of his career. Mason Plummer, yeah. this is the third team he's been on. So we're talking about guys uh-huh. who have been shipped around. Gary Harris was an undrafted guy out of Michigan State. He's, I mean, a second rounder out of Michigan State. Monty Morris was a nobody. This is a team full of guys who are rejects or underachievers, I mean, overachievers. Boston, yeah, he's a high draft pick, guys. But their core, self-built, Marcus Smart, Jalen Brown, Jason Tatum, Robert Williams, Daniel Tice. These are guys who are not big names. The guy you traded for, you Absolutely gave up not. the biggest star allegedly on your roster in Kyrie Irving to bring in Kimball Walker, who has not had a great postseason. And None. yet here you are in the conference finals. And then you take the Lakers, who are the outlier now, who will always be the outlier in the way in which they built their team. But what you're seeing, though, is – Three teams built as teams that didn't have to go swing for the fence for a major free agent, that didn't have to spend, overspend money to fill out their rosters. They decided what their core was, and they built around it. All three of those other teams, Miami figured out, Bam is the guy, we get rid of Hassan. We figured out, oh, we really like Harrow, we bring him in, and he's our shooter for the future. Duncan Robinson, Mm -hmm. we've identified you. We need yeah. that other piece. We go grab Jimmy Butler. Now we have our piece to go with everything we already have. It can be done without selling your soul. That speaks to intangibles. What are the intangibles of our culture and our identity? And who are we going to be? And are these guys willing to buy in? When have you ever known a player who is considered a superstar like Jimmy Butler is to always praise his teammates and talk about, man, Bam is the heart and soul of our team. I've been telling everybody this. Additionally, you've seen him on the sideline. I told you, we got some bad boys. We, we, exactly, Dave, we, we. (laughs) Not me, man, we do. And the same way, we talked about how the Clippers acquiescing to Kawhi and Paul causes division on a team with players. The we mentality brings unity and togetherness on a basketball team because you feel like you're a partner. Did you see Udonis Haslam's quotes? Quote, yes, I did on Twitter. And that stuff again. UD, the dude who's been there the longest, ain't playing minutes. He ain't even None. not even seeing None. the floor. But what does he say? When it's time to run, I run. So what is a rookie gonna tell me? I run. I've been in this league. I got I'm a I'm I'm an OG in Miami. I'm you got an answer town. to me. I done made it through this town. I got rings on this team, and I'm out here running. You gonna run. There is like you said, dude. there is no day off. You got to answer to me. That was what he said. You got to answer to me. But remember this. We also talked about this on our first Thursday. Remember, Jawan Howard used to be that exact same guy. You protect the culture. Dave, and that is exactly it. But it starts where? From Pat Riley. Pat Riley all the way down. And in every one of these organizations – 
they've set a tone. Danny Ainge put he put Brad Stevens in that position, and he is stuck with Brad Stevens. Players, Kyrie had a problem with Brad. Kyrie the one that left, not Brad. You got to go. Yes. You know what I'm saying? It's like you got, I empowered my coach. You go to Denver, Mike Malone is empowered. You go to Miami, yep. Eric Spolstra is empowered. Yes, sir. So if we were ranking the coaches remaining, Spolstra, Stevens, Vogel, Malone, there's no way, however you arrange this, that Vogel comes out on top. No. And that's, that's, I don't mean that to insult Frank Vogel, but I know Frank Vogel is much more of a, of a manager of that team than as opposed to or Malone. Yeah, as opposed to a director, an instructor, an accountability, if you will. We know that the, the conversations that Vogel would have would be more of kind of a, a questioning. And, yeah, like asking and making sure everybody is fine. And Whereas Spostra and, and, and Mike Malone are not dictators, but they're demanding. They are engaged. They are involved in what goes on in the direction and staying within who we are. And I loved the comment that you did. And, and maybe it's because guys like you and myself, we're old school guys and we get it. We understand that right that you have to earn to be in this position. Now, does Udonis Haslam play? Of course not but he still sets the tone and the culture going forward. They know he's a made man. And that's the thing is like, if I've earned it, and that's, he's earned it. He's not a guy hanging on. No. He's earned the right with Miami to be there as that. And teams sometimes need that. You need that guy with, in any job, you go someplace, there's always somebody who's got institutional knowledge. Yeah. They've been around long enough that they know where all the things are. They know all the fastest way to get to A to B. They yep. can tell you those things because they've been there. You yep. don't get rid of the institutional knowledge people. You <laughs> want to keep one of those around because what they are is continuity. Yeah. That's your continuity. There is somebody, when Udonis goes, because it was, Udonis came in the same time as D-Wade. You know what I mean? They came the same time. Mm -hmm. D-Wade's gone. When Udonis is gone, there is somebody on that roster already who has been given that mantle. We don't know who it is, but next year, even if it's not Jimmy, because he hasn't been there long enough, even though he's right. embraced the heat way, there's right. another person on that roster already who is prepared mm -hmm. to assume Udonis's role next season. Yes, absolutely. Absolutely. And that's the thing about it, man. That's what makes, that's what makes watching Miami play for me. So much fun, Dave. I They've like been the most entertaining, entertaining team of the playoffs for me. Denver and second, and just but those two teams have been the best to watch. And if you recall, when we did the first podcast together on that Thursday, remember I said, "Dude, watch out for Miami," because I felt like they just had that that air of toughness that you need when crunch time comes. It, it, it it's there, and Coach Spo has been there before. He's seen it all. So there's nothing that's going to surprise him, if you will. Okay? He has been able to transition from a D-Wade and a Shaq to uh, a LeBron and D-Wade. He's had the superstars. He's had the megastars. He's got the regular average Joes. 
and they all were able to buy in. And that's the key to that culture and that identity in that climate is the fact that again, and Dave, you know this to be true, brother, when your leader is leading the buy-in and when your made man who is the locker room guy also resonates that and buys in if you don't buy in, what's going to happen? You're, you're going to be problem. shipped out. Yeah, you, you're, you're going to be problem. shipped out. It doesn't matter. <laughs> There's a difference between talent and teammate. There's a difference. And that's yes. the thing is you can, accumu- you can accumulate all the talent you want. And I want talent. Every team wants talent. But if you don't have teammates, it don't work. It doesn't work. Yep. And, and you could say there's an easy argument to be made that Miami is not the most talented team. You can make the same argument about Denver, that they're not the most talented team. But I would say this. You take that series with the Lakers. Yes, the Lakers have the number one and number two most talented players in this series in LeBron and AD. Right. But Jokic ain't a far three behind right. at this stage in his career. And having – but I would say Denver also has three, four, and five – in this series of the best players, the next best Lakers performer in the postseason is Rondo. Right. And that cannot be the case in this series. In this series, somebody other than Rondo better step step up because I can't say for sure that Rondo's going to hit his shot for six more games. Correct. If Rajon is your third best player on your team, and you know I have never shied away from how much I love Rajon Rondo. That is my guy. But we know but, what he is, too. Exactly, Dave. If, if, if Rajon is your third go-to guy, brother, you got serious problems there. They absolutely do. But I think, that, again, I think they win that series. In the East, I think Miami beats Boston, and I think that one goes six as well. I, and especially given the fact that Kimba Walker has been you know, awful. He's been awful, and then – Here's the other thing that aggravates me about him now. You would think, given that you're finally here after all those years of futility in Charlotte, now that you're finally here, you need to stop being excited every time you make a shot. Like, it's just the greatest scene in the world, bro. Like, move on. (laughs) Excuse me. Get back. Play defense. Get ready for the next play. Lead. Stop putting your finger up every time you score a three. This is what you're supposed to do. This is your job. Stop with the excitement behind every shot that you make. The looking at your hand like, oh, my God. Dude. He's missing too many shots to be doing anything anyway. He's missing too many to be getting hyped up anyway. Make your shots, and when you're not making your shots, he's got to do a little bit more playmaking for other people. Kimba's got to figure that out. That reminds me of the Houston Lakers series when Houston is getting torched and Russell is just yammering at the mouth still. It's like, dude. And I like the fact that LeBron laughed at him like, dude. And Dave, you know, we grew up in a park playing this. When you get blasted, you got nothing to talk about. Come on, nothing. You posting up and I'm scoring. You're like, you yelling at, and you yelling at kids and family members. This ain't even a real, real audience, dude. You. You're like, arguing with Rajon's brother on a sideline? Like, you about to go and do something? Like, dude. Russ, no. No. You should have had that fight with yourself when there you, you were taking it to the rim, when you weren't posting guys up any Bruh. other time. 
you wanted to do that all series, last series against OKC. Where were these post-ups throughout the Lakers series? I didn't see they, it. And then, then um, you see Carl Anthony Towns. I'm sorry, but did you see Carl Anthony Towns talk about, I don't understand why James Harden was getting criticism for the way he played in the Lakers series. That shows me why Carl Anthony Towns does. ain't won nothing. There you go. He's a, he's a, he's a, he's a box score watcher. Well, he scored yep. 31 points in that series. He averaged 31. Don't matter what you averaged, man. What you averaged 30. You average, you're averaging 31, and at one or two points times in the game, you're down by 31. <laughs> lack of impact. <laughs> lack of impact. Numbers Again. don't mean there, – there are nine for 20 nights that are good, and there are nine for 20 nights that are bad. It's all about the way the game was played. And you, have to, you, you cannot just pull the number out and take away all of the variables of when, what was called, how did the defense respond, all these things, the situation, when was it in the shot clock. Did, all these things matter. And a number <laughs> alone cannot tell you those things. So take the numbers. The numbers are important. Take the numbers. But you have to go back and apply it to the game. And yep. situations that you are using that number to, to define for you and say, does it match with what I saw on the court? You're just dropping numbers at random, and it has no significance nor impact in what goes on in the ebbs and the flow of the game. That's great. You got 31, but you lost by 20. What does it serve? You didn't help your other players be better. There you go. That's the thing. If you didn't help the – and that's the problem with Harden. And now you see Mike D'Antoni. He's out. He's already been mentioned as a candidate in Philly and Indiana, which I think is strange for both of those teams because Philly is not a team built to play at the speed that he wants to play. And Indiana certainly, I wonder what that would mean for a Miles Turner, a Sabonis. You know, they have bigs in Indiana that are very talented. I'd worry about D'Antoni there. But as we talked about last week, I just don't – whoever is going to get that Rockets job, I feel bad for him. Uh, Dave, you want to talk about setting a, a, a culture that is not good from an overall precedent standpoint? For as much as I love P.J. Tucker and his yeoman work ethic, he's in a very bad position, bro, being there, given what they've done. Because here's the other thing. You also can't bring in anybody. Let's be honest. Would you want to play with Russell or James Harden? There's no way in the world. No way. The only asset you have to give away that would get you a first rounder, the only one, is Robert Covington. Unless you're giving up Harden, and they're not going to give up Harden. You you don't let Dan Tony go and keep Daryl Morey if you let him go of Harden. True indeed. True indeed, Dave. So that means you know, if you try to trade Russ, I don't see where there's a taker. Somebody going to have to explain to me where there would be a taker in, this, in the NBA right now, outside of maybe the Knicks being crazy and thinking, that, oh, we'll take Russ and he's a star. So you can watch him fade his, the rest of his career in New York. But nobody's going to take him. P.J. Tucker, like you said, at his age and at his value, you're not going to get a one for him. No. To help you get a younger player or something like that, you have to give something up too. And you don't have any number one picks. You don't have any first rounders this year. 
So then all you got is the giveaway is Covington, but a pick doesn't help you this year either if that's what you get back for Covington. Dude, that was bad on every level. That's just like we had to give give the business to Doc for him being excused for so long. The same thing with Dan Tony, and I said it the first night when they got knocked out of the bubble. I don't understand why there is so much smoke for Dan Tony. What has he done? He's done nothing that is that, that, that takes your team to another level. He's just not. This is not about, well, he's just a good guy and he knows offense, but it's been proven it's not going to work. So why do you keep recycling somebody who has proven that he can't get you where you want to go? That makes no sense to me. Even his offensive scheme and acquiescing to James and, 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 and Russell, it's like, dude, this is a recipe for disaster. It just is. You can't have a team that relies on two people constantly. It just does not work. It doesn't work unless those two players are incredibly unselfish. Mm-hmm. Unselfish. And yep. I'm sorry, the assists that James and Russ get are predominantly caused because they have decided to draw the attention to themselves, not because the play is initiated in order to create an opportunity for someone else. Right. It's because Russ and James had the ball from the start of the shot clock and determined who's going to get the shot if it ain't them. Mm -hmm. You cannot win playing that way. Everyone on the court, to a varying degree, yes, we understand there's a hierarchy, but everyone on the court is intended to be a threat at some point. Yes, sir. In the 24 seconds. Everyone on the floor. And here's another part. Dan Tony's style is not going to work in Indiana, the heartland of basketball. It's just not. That is not good basketball. It's not. You know, it'll give you, you know, it'll give you the excitement that you want during a regular season. It'll give you the record-breaking numbers that you may want during a regular season, but it's not going to yield where you want to be at the end of the season. And it goes against, like you said, it, it does go against the identity of what the Pacers have been historically. Yeah. Whether it's Nate McMillan, Larry Bird, Larry Brown, there's been a consistency and style of play. Even when Isaiah was there. Yeah, it's a there's a physical level of toughness. There is an execution that they that they have thrived on. It's always been about ball movement, defense, and precision in Indiana. That's what it's been about for a number of years. That so I'd be very ever since the Davis boys got there and Chuck Person left. When that changed, since that period, about 1994, maybe, on, Mm -hmm. Indiana's been a physical, defensive team that plays sound offensive principles. And you you change that once you bring in a D'Antoni. And, again, I have never been a D'Antoni guy. I don't have, you know, I don't have the, the faith and belief that he can get you where it is you're trying to go. 
you know, that's great that you put a team out there, but where is it going? Like, what are you doing with it? The, the, the fact that there are even rumors that would have him coming to New Orleans drops. Oh, drops. my gosh. That is the last thing the Pelicans need to. The last thing that they need, which, ironically enough, since, we, since you brought up the Pelicans and since you brought up New Orleans, let's do it. All right. 24-second 24, 24 shot clock. Thought about right. this. We're gonna do the twenty-four. We're gonna do the twenty-four second shot clock. All right. All right. User listener questions. Listener questions off of Twitter, and the first one is from at Nola underscore Fredo, my man Alfredo. NBA question: How much of a chance do you give the Nuggets to shock the world in the Western Conference, which we addressed? But as it relates to the Pelicans, do you think the primary ball handler of the Pels' future is in the building right now, or do they need to find somebody? First question. All right, my quick answer is yes, they have one in the building, but it is still remains to be seen if he's the one to keep. Because I think Lonzo Ball can be – Is I am a Lonzo fan, but mentally – until he decides that he's going to be someone who attacks the basket. One of the things when we bring up Rondo, that is, that is genius about Rondo, to overcome his limitations offensively, that he figured out was probing the defense. And it's something similar to also that Steve Nash did. It's where you drive with no expressed purpose other than to make the defense move. And use your vision then to do something to keep the offense humming. So for Rondo, a lot of times, and we saw it in New Orleans, it would either be a hard drive on the baseline to make somebody come so he could do a drop off to AD, or he could get. And as that defense collapses on him, he's dropping it off as that player is running to the rim. Because he knows. They go where the ball goes. That's what players are conditioned to do. Whether it breaks them down or not, if they see the ball near them, they are going to be where the ball is. Now, his skill, as we know, he's one of the most gifted passers of his generation. So he's able to do that. Same with Steve Nash. What did he do? A lot of times he would just dribble and get himself to see where somebody was going to come. Are you going to follow me? Are you going to follow me? If nobody Mm -hmm. follow, you bring it back out. But that first penetration is to make the defense move and see if you can get a score early in the shot clock. That's the whole principle of the seven seconds. I'm going to get in the lane. Either we get a three or we get the layup real quick. If not, you reset. Lonzo has to get to that point. If he doesn't, he's got to go. It's just that simple. Your point guard has to be able to get into the paint in the half court to create, and the Pelicans do not have anybody else on the roster, really, who can do that. So it has to be Lonzo, or they got to go find somebody. All right. My 24 seconds on the shot clock. And I'm loving this. I'm going to tell you why I'm loving this. Because I was looking forward to this also, is that I knew we were going to have a difference of opinion on this one. So here's the deal. Is Lonzo and could Lonzo be that guy? He could be. He has shown tendencies to be such. 
but can he do it over the long haul? And I feel like the thing to me is he lacks that necessary leadership that is needed at the position right now. And as crazy as it may sound, and I got no problem taking the hit for it. My brother, the guy for me with the right coach in here who will teach him speed is Nikhil. I take Nikhil over Lonzo any single day because he's fearless, he defends, and he will put players in position to be successful. The only one that Lonzo tends to put in position to be successful is Zion. Nikhil puts everybody in a situation to be successful. So would I say that we have somebody in-house? The jury for me is still out on Lonzo. That's what I'm he saying. Hasn't sh- My jury is out he on hasn't- him. You know, he hasn't shown me he hasn't shown me enough to say that this guy could be the leader of my team. And the other thing that bothers me about Lonzo is he's not a vocal leader. He's not a directive leader. He's not an aggressor. He is. Here's what I'll say is I think. And, and, and a lot of people made this an issue when he signed with clutch and it wasn't a problem for me. I didn't sweat it at all. Um, and people say, well, he's got three agents in the last three years. And I would say this. The growing up process for any young man is very difficult. When you are the oldest of three guy, three boys who your father has determined will all make it into the NBA and groups you as such. Yeah. And you are the one who is the first, so you have to set the path. And your father has put that on you. So you got to carry your brothers along the whole way. Carry him, carry him, carry him. That's what the Rock Nation thing was about. That was yeah. about Jello. That was about hooking Jello up because Jello didn't have nothing. And I'm not saying that to dismiss him either. He's a nice dude. I've met him. He's a nice dude. No, I have no beef with Jello. I don't. I've never seen enough of him to really evaluate him as a player. That's that's exactly. Yes. Who, who else do that? But I'm saying it's clear that when you signed all three brothers to Rock Nation, that was about the family. And Lazo had his Michael Jackson moment. I don't want to play with the group anymore. I got things in my life that I want to do for Lazo. Right. So this was his decision. I don't have, you know, the, the beef with Rich Paul and people who jumped out and was like, well, well, now you got to trade Lonzo because he signed with Clutch. That's immature. Okay, that's immature. Right. We can, the, the agreement for me, and I think you say, we all understand and we don't have to rehash this, that the AD thing went down in a bad way. But that's, that happens occasionally with any agent in all of sports. Whether it's, and I told people this, I said, y'all doing this on Rich Paul, but we could be talking Scott Boris, Lee Steinberg, Drew Rosenhaus, uh, David right. Falk. If you got a major agent, at some point they have pissed a, a team off by doing something like this, and teams have done the reverse. So I'm, I'm past Absolutely. that. I'm past that. But Alonzo signing with Clutch, to me, I hope, is that is a sign that he is now going to assert his individuality in a way that he has not before, which will transfer onto the court. It has to. That has to. You, you're right. This year for him, all the other things now, we've cleaned it up. You're not hurt anymore. Your shot's better. 
Mm-hmm. Should be comfortable here. You say you love playing with Bi and 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 Zion and Hart and all. That. You should all the things that you didn't have in LA now, you have in place here. But you got one year to get it right, man. And that's right. really what it is because Rich Paul can't make. This is not an AD situation where he's guaranteed to get the max. Lonzo's not in that position. The league is watching Lonzo very closely. So if he goes around and blows it up, it don't matter if he got Rich Paul as his agent or not. If he doesn't play, the money ain't there. Right. Right. I agree with that. All right. Question number two. This is from Darren Howard at one Darren Howard. Do you see the Pelicans making moves before the draft to trade Drew? No. It won't happen before the draft. It won't happen before the draft. You got to give a new coach the time to come in, assess the roster, what is their plan, Mm-hmm. going forward and we've talked about that I don't want to make any decisions as a franchise until my coach comes in and at least if, at the very least that's part of our conversation what do you want to do with this roster right and trading drew to me before the draft also is a is a signal to me that you're trading him low on value his value is, is going to be higher to me as you get closer to the deadline that's just my thought because right now I don't know what teams have to give up. I don't know what the cap looks like. I don't know right. how desperate folks are going to be. So I want to know how desperate other teams are going to get. Because, ultimately, because we're dealing with because we're dealing with a different animal right now given the situations that are at hand. So you're right. We don't know what other teams have. We don't know what the cap is going to be. There are factors that are involved besides a simple, well, let's just move Drew. You also don't know who that coach is that we're going to bring in that may be able to utilize Drew better. And you're right, going into that trade that trade deadline would allow you more time to assess the situation of, okay, we have to start preparing to move Drew, or given the direction that we're going in and the core that we have, Drew is still a stable. Because let's not forget, Despite as bad as it was in the bubble, and even though he didn't have a typical Drew-like season even going into the bubble, Drew is still your best defender. He may need to be re-energized or re-engaged, because let's think about it. Nate, if you are part of a, 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 a program where losing is happening constantly now, you can kind of start to get tired of it as well and just – disassociate yourself in the sense of, well, I'm not going to be as vocal as I probably should be. It's hard to go through that all the time, losing and losing and not feeling a level of hope. Whether you're involved in the team losing or not, still, that takes a psychological toll on you. So I agree wholeheartedly. You can't move Drew yet until you figure out who your coach is going to be, until a salary cap has been set, until you see what other player movement there is out there to come which we don't know of yet and free agency is going to be insane because the window is going to be much tighter uh, for yeah. free agency so teams are going to be moving around a lot as these other coaches change player destinations are going to be different um so that that to me is don't rush don't mm-hmm. rush for the sake of making the move the moves are there but right. you don't have to rush let let things settle and, and, and so to me, yeah, rushing to get rid of Drew, even though the most likely option is that he will move on, 
I mean, it just it, that's if you ask me today, betting wise, yeah, probability says that you you move on a player who's in his next to last year with a player option, and mm-hmm. he's plus thirty, and your core is all below twenty five. Yeah, usually you would move that guy, but absolutely, I'm not doing it for the sake of doing it. Exactly, like you don't make a move just to say we made a move, and you also raised. you also have to look at the you also have to look at the side of the value of Drew and what can we get prior to, you know, right now, let's be honest. There are no takers for Drew right now, even though amongst his peers, everybody respects Drew for what he does defensively and being tough noticed guys. But it's not as if he's one of those higher tier guys that you're like, listen, I got to have him right now in my squad. Cause if that was the case, we would keep him here on our squad if he was that need-to-have guy on your team. If he was that much of a difference maker, yes. Exactly. And so he's much more of a third piece on a championship team. He's Mm -hmm. the third guy. And when you look around the landscape of the teams that we're talking about, there are very few matches outside of teams that get mentioned all the time. New Jersey. I mean, uh, Brooklyn, excuse me. I keep saying New Jersey because I want to put them there. But Brooklyn <laughs> is always mentioned. I don't see Miami as a viable destination for Drew because I don't see the Heat wanting to throw 20-plus million at him knowing that they have BAM's money coming up, knowing that you have these, these – and why would you want to give up the continuity of that rookie group? Yes, Drew is tough, but I don't know if mentally – Drew is the kind of Miami tough that you're asking for. Maybe in Milwaukee, but what do you, the Pelicans, want from Milwaukee in return? See, that's the thing, too, is you got to look at what are you going to get back. And you're not getting anything from Milwaukee. Right. That's what I was saying before. So what's the upside for us in return of who it is you're trading him to? So the options are very limited. If you want want to send Drew to a team and be fair to him and give him a chance to win – there may be only three or four suitors that you can even talk about in sending in there. And then of those four, how many of them have pieces you want in return? Because what you don't need is a ton of more picks. No, no, you don't need any more youth on this team that are just picks. That's the last thing you need. You have enough of a youth movement that is there. Are you going to perpetually be Orlando? That's where you end up. If you keep drafting and drafting and drafting, you end up perpetually trying to find a combination of young players when, and we could go into, I want to do this on another episode just, and I want to bring in a third person. I want to bring in a coach to talk with us too, to talk about the lack of coaching in basketball right now. But that's the whole point. You bring in all these young kids, that's why they end up one dimensional because you have to get them on the floor and you can't round out their skills during the season. So you turn them into, you just rebound. You just shoot threes. You just block Mm -hmm. shots. And that's, you cannot have the Pelicans become a one-dimensional organization. True indeed. You most certainly cannot. And just like you referenced to Milwaukee, quite frankly, who in the world would you want off of Milwaukee for Drew Holiday? Nobody. Nobody. Because I don't want Middleton in return. I got that Ingram. And let's not forget this. We also have to make it a point to look at this, which is going to be imperative and a determining factor of where the Pelicans go. 
you need to get somebody here who has an air of toughness and who is a vocal locker room leader guy. That's a must for this basketball team, which was part of the question that was also asked uh, by Mr. Glapion to both of us of, about the locker room culture. And, that's, and, and we did it. You know, we have nice guys on this team, guys that don't get in trouble. That's great. That's fine and dandy. You want that. But when it comes to competing and battling and being on the court, you want somebody who is going to not just lead by example, but also who has no problem calling out a teammate and that teammate not getting in their feelings. You need to have somebody who is going to hold you accountable, but at the same point in time, you're growing and you're learning together for one common goal. So you here's, have to have that. So here's what we do know, though. There is no OG on the Pelican squad. None. You know what I'm saying? That even None. if Drew is the longest tenured, he's not the guy to fill that he's role. Not. No. So then you say – it's certainly not going to be somebody you bring in because they have no standing. You know what I mean? It can't be. It can't be somebody you bring in this offseason. They don't have the standing. That's why it didn't work for J.J. As professional as J.J. is, he, just, he was just arriving like everybody else. So if I don't yes. know you, the standing, again, it's not the same. So it has to emerge from Zion, B.I., or Zoe. It, those are the starters. It's mm-hmm. not going to be whomever they bring in at center, whether it's Favors returning or Jackson, whoever. It ain't going to be that guy. And it's not right. going to be Drew. It's not going to be Josh Hart. Even though Josh Hart is a, is a vital piece of this team and I want him to be here, he's still the sixth man. It can't yeah. be him. So it's, it has to either be Zion, B.I., or Zoe. And, and we know B.I. is not necessarily a talker. He's a tough dude. I don't want to yes. fight him. Yeah. He may not be the talker. He, he takes accountability. He's tough as nails. And He's I'll, an example. He leads by example. So then that means, and you saying if it, so now we got Zoe, and we've already said it ain't Zoe. Because he's not showing you any of that. And, it's, and the thing about it, Dave, is as we tell people, you can't all of a sudden become that overnight either. So now who are we dropping it at the feet of? Zion Williamson. Zion. So he has something to prove now. To come back this mm-hmm. year, there ain't going to be no bitching about your knee. There ain't going to be no bitching about your ass and how big it is. You right. got to come in and set the tone before day one. Whenever this yeah. coach is signed, you have to be the guy who shows up at that press conference. Zion Williamson has to be there. This is the kind yeah. of, you know, I mean, if it's Zoom, he got to be on the Zoom call. Right. You have to be there and assume the responsibility now of taking this team to level two. Mm-hmm. If it's not him, it's nobody. Yes, sir. Yes, sir. It's got to be between one of those three. And again, at the rate that we're going, we've already seen that sample. So that means in lies, it has to be that head coach who can lead. It has to be that head coach who's going to be demonstrative. It has to be that head coach who's going to be the voice and hold guys accountable because from a player standpoint, it won't be those guys. So we're going to see. We're going to see. That was the last of our uh, questions from, from Twitter, I think, right? Because I think those were the three. Absolutely. That was the last of the questions from Twitter. Definitely so, appreciate them. Yes. And please keep sending them each week, and um, we'll do a better job of yeah. getting folks to notice. But, man, we covered it. 
and I'm getting ready. I want to see what this game looks like. I just now I'm just seeing uh, Vince Carter joining ESPN as an analyst next year for NBA and college yeah. basketball. So VC mm-hmm. staying around. That's the man. Um, yeah, yeah. They're at halftime right now. Boston is up sixty to forty-eight. But 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 we but but we both know that means nothing to Miami though. No, they've been down double digits before. We've seen them, <laughs> they will walk you down. It is going to be, can Boston maintain that shooting? And I, I'm really interested to see what Jason Tatum does in the second half. He's been so good, so, so good in these yeah. playoffs, man. Whew. So, yeah, got to get ready for the second half of that. And I want to see my man Joe Burrow, man. Yeah, you got to beat them Browns, man. You got to If you're going to uh, come out there, this is how you do it. Beat Baker Mayfield and shut that dude up because I'm tired of Baker Let me Mayfield. tell you something. And you know, everybody knows me, know I'm a loyal and love my Ducks. But – I like Joe Burrow's personality off the field. I like his leadership and him standing up for what he has and just wanting things to be right. Right. R-I-G-H-T. Right. That's it. In society. But I love the leadership that he has shown. Because last week, Quite frankly, the Cincinnati Bengals should be 1-0 right now, if not for a bad OPI call and a missed field goal. But Joe Burrow, even though he's an LSU guy, Joe Burrow is my guy. Like, I, I, I like the character of his jib and what he brings to the table. To me, he's a leader, brother. He's a leader. Yeah, I'm, I'm excited to see him, like, to this point – yeah, and I'm not an LSU fan either. It's right. not my it's not my school. I'm just sorry. Exactly. I didn't grow up loving them. I didn't go yeah. to it. It's not my thing. But, and it's so funny when people in Louisiana, well, how can you not like LSU? Well, it's not my school. I didn't go there. I mean, what do, what do you want me to do? I mean, we, we just I'm, didn't grow up I'm, in my house talking about LSU. It just right. wasn't something that we did. You know, exactly. My, I'm like, you know, you don't have to like them. I go, I'm not upset because you're not an Oregon duck. You have no reason to be an Oregon duck. I mean, that's you know what I'm saying? But yeah, I, I, I really like I like the I like the the aspect that this kid brings and the way he carries himself and his leadership, man. I really, really do. So yeah, I really want Baker Mayfield to just shut it up, man. Get up out of there, dude. Uh, yeah, brother. Yeah. Another great one, man. I really appreciate your time and um I always love doing these with you. Um I can't wait till we actually oh, get man. to do these in person again. Then you get to be yes. around. So um, I wouldn't have my Thursdays no other way, baby. High, low, on, hard in the paint, man. Because that's what we do, brother. Yeah, we can shoot it from outside, but we want to punish you and let you know. That's what a game yeah. is won. That's what a yeah. game is won, man. On that's the glass, it, in the paint. It's always going to be the story. There it is, my brother. So tell the folks real quick how they can follow you, and we're going to get up out here. Of course, you can follow me on Twitter and on Instagram at Dino Hoops 11. That's D I N O Hoops, like a basketball hoop, and the number 11. And on Facebook, Dino, D I N E A U X. There's my little port of LSU for you, Louisiana. I put the E A U X on there on Facebook. Dino the Dean Hanson, H A N S O N, my brother. It's always great doing what we do on Thursdays, man. Highlight of my week, brother. 
Man, one of my favorite things, too. Um, so y'all know, follow me at DM Grub on Twitter and Instagram and H-I-P-T, H-I-T-P with D Grub on Instagram as well. And the website, H-I-T-P with DG.com. Also, please check it out. The store, we've updated it. Um, a lot more stuff for um, just athletic type apparel, football jerseys, basketball jerseys, baseball stuff, yoga pants, sweat, you know, just all kinds of stuff that we added. And then on Redbubble as well, some some really cool items um, there. So check it out, support the show that way, and make sure you like it and rate us um, as well. So until the next time, I am David Grubb, and this has been Hard to Paint.